Hello, and welcome to Misty's Lunacy. Today, my guest is a former Marine infantry officer who served in Vietnam and subsequently had a career in magazine publishing, working at major magazines such as Rolling Stone and Town and & Country. An avid reader, he frequently facilitates book discussions at Society of the Four Arts here in Palm Beach. His lifetime passion through his movies and the depth of his knowledge and memory is absolutely remarkable. Wait till you're here. Here to share with us today is my guest, Billy David. Hello. Thank you, Miss D. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you're quite an amazing person with quite an amazing memory. And I want to know why, and my listeners would love to know, how do you have such an amazing memory? It's a good question. Um, I'm sure some of my professors in college and graduate school would question that. Uh, but in terms of movies, for some reason, since I was a little boy, I can remember not only every movie I've ever seen, but also where I saw them and with whom I was with, and sometimes the size of the popcorn I was eating. I have that memory about films many of which I've seen again now on Turner Movie Channel, as we all have, yeah. so that helps to refresh. But uh, on the other hand, sometimes I forget why I go to the kitchen in the morning. Well, it doesn't matter. You have an am amazing memory. Now, today we're going to be doing what I believe is the golden age of classic-era movies. Is that correct? Yes. Basically, that's I like to describe it as 1935, yes. right when the production code came in. Through like the mid-60s, when, as we all know, everything changed in this country. Um, the civil rights, urban riots, Vietnam War, sexual revolution, rock and roll. And then, as importantly for films, the censorship disappeared. So that made movies, I'm not saying better or for worse, but certainly different from movies we saw in the 40s or 50s or 30s. That's very true, especially if you remember that uh, back in the day they couldn't sleep in the same bed. They have to have a foot on the floor all the yes. time from uh, the... Uh, the... This is, see, that's so true. A lot of people don't realize married couples could not be seen no. in the same bed. Now, maybe some married couples, that's fine. But all kidding aside, even young couples, you couldn't ever refer to uh, homosexuality or no. lesbianism. No, no, no. Uh, and so the director's had to kind of work around these things. You, a crime could not pay. We all know people get away with, with murder, murder, financial and otherwise. But we know that crime couldn't pay. Adultery couldn't be rewarded. Oh. Um, murder, only in certain circumstances could a, um, a killing could be justified. Um, so it's amazing these directors turned out so many great films working within these limitations. That's correct. Now, art directing and editing, of course, is essential to any movie, which is what you told me. Yes. The director is the most important person in the because he or she, above all, is responsible for the making of the film. And all facets of the collaborative film effort, the director is directly involved with. That is screenwriting, editing, actors, the sound, uh, the costumes. And the director, as one director said, 
he has to be a thin line in spending the studio's money, not his, to make the film that he wants to make. And win awards with it, but that's not yes. the beginning. So the movie, the, so the director that you actually picked at the moment was this wonderful uh, director called George Stevens. Yes. And he was, a, uh, he won a lot of stuff. Yes. What did he, tell me he about was, it. George Stevens was a very interesting <clears throat> uh, director. And when we talk about some of these directors, people often know the name of the movie or the movie stars, as it should be. Correct. They don't always know the director unless it's someone who became a personality like Alfred Hitchcock or Orson Welles. Stevens' parents were both in the theater, the live theater, and he worked with them. They all went to Hollywood when movies started. He worked, as many in that generation did, in silent movies. That's where the classic directors learned the trade in silent movies. They did editing, they did directing, they acted. He did one of the best Astaire, uh, Ginger Rogers musicals ever, Swing Time, 1936. Um, and by the way, it has the only song ever, uh, Friday Astaire Academy Award, uh, The Way You Look Tonight. Oh. Uh, wonderful. Uh, and the dance sequence, sequence entitled uh, Never Gonna Dance, Heartbreaking, Bittersweet, is considered perhaps the best ever done, not only in front of Stair, Rogers, in any movie ever. He then later did Gunga Din. That's right. A great adventure movie. He Interesting thing here was, based on Rudyard Kipling's stories about Northwest frontier up in uh, India, interesting thing here was, he got permission. He said, I got to get out of the studio on location up in Sierra Nevadas, where many movies were shot. And by the way, I've never been there, but they say that it's very similar in uh, topography as the Northwest Frontier in India. He learned two things. One, when you have the actors and crew outside in tents, cold, insects, heat, rain, they work together, they bond like a combat team. He also learned a very important lesson that many directors had to learn. The further you're away from Hollywood, the less interference you got from the producer. Then he went to uh, war. He volunteered, he was overage. Uh, that is not on draft dodge, he was a young father. He. Um, he had done a couple of fine movies, The More the Merrier and uh, Talk of the Town, were nominated for a total of 13 Academy Awards just before he went to war. So he was on top of his game. He gave it all up because he felt he should serve. That's very, very true of this generation of uh, directors. He worked under Eisenhower in the European campaign of, um, with a film unit. He shot the only color film of D-Day. That's right. He shot it with a 60-millimeter camera on his shoulder, going in, not in the first wave, but the second wave, every fire. He then led all the way in to Paris, and one of the most beautiful documentaries is called The Woman of Paris. And it's the French 2nd Armored Division under General Leclerc. He got word 
that de Gaulle had insisted the French go first, and Eisenhower, to his great credit, backed de, de Gaulle. And so you see the French and French women, and it's incredibly moving documentary. No sound, just women, girls, young mothers, older women, uh, saluting, crying, laughing. Then he also opened up Dachau. I was there when they opened Dachau, the concentration camp. His films of Dachau were used to convict over 24 Nazis at the Nuremberg trial. 19 were hung. That's it was insane. used in evidence because the Nazis were denying the photographs were doctored, but you couldn't doctor the film. After the war, he did a couple of fine films, one based on a novel by Thurlow Dreiser, 1925 novel, uh, American Tragedy. He named it A Place in the Sun. Wonderful. And that is great cast, very young, Montgomery Cliff. Liz Taylor, I think. Elizabeth Taylor, who's 19 years old and never looked more beautiful, and a young Shelley Winters. And it's a classic rich guy, I mean, poor boy, rich girl, American family. He's a poor relative. The uncle has him come and work in the factory. He starts having an affair with a factory worker. He's not supposed to. Shelley Winters. Meantime, he's invited to the big house of his uncles to a party. It's a beautiful scene because while he has a beautiful uh, suit on and he's handsome, it's a black tie party. And I know what that's like. You go to a party and you're underdressed. It may be hip today, but it was not hip then. He's playing pool. He, he says he's so shy he runs into the billiards room because as a poor kid, he knows how to play pool. And the door's half ajar, and in walks Liz Taylor, and that starts a credible affair. However, the other woman gets pregnant. Aye, aye, aye. He takes her out. Whether it be intentional or not, he's going to the electric chair. And it's a very sad ending. <coughs> he won six Academy Awards. Screenplay, editing, uh, and he won Best Director. <coughs> then George Stevens directed in the top 10 Westerns, it's ranked number two, Shane. That's right. Landmark Western, shot on location in Wyoming. Um, it was a movie where it showed he was, he's, poor George Stevens was trying to show how terrible violence is. And by doing so, he had a gunfighter played by um, Jack Palance, who was nominated for Academy Award, and he only had 13 lines. No actors ever had fewer lines, because oh. he looked so great as a gunfighter. And he shoots one of the homesteaders, and Stevens had a harness, and it was pulled by a tractor to pull him across the thing to show the impact of a 44 Colt revolver. Stevens was trying to show how terrible violence is, but some young directors like Sam Peckinpah, who later did The Wild Bunch, which is the most violent Western, as it was done after the censorship, 67, he was in glee. He said, wow, when we saw what Stevens could do, it opened up all kinds of possibilities. He then did another fine movie, Giant, based on Edna Firmer's novel, Big Sprawling, and he won his second 
Director Academy Award. It was a number two box office hit of the year. It holds up very well. Rock Hudson, Liz Taylor again. Wow. And James Dean, interesting story. It was his third and last movie. Dean was forbidden in his contract to drive his Porsche because he was so reckless. The screening end ended in Texas, the end of middle of September. Dean now hops his Porsche heading to a race in Riverside, California. He's in an accident. He's killed. Oh, no. There's a last scene, a huge scene, one of the last scenes at a banquet. And Dean is drunk. He's a big rich now. He's Jet Texas. But it's very sad. He's lonesome. And the daughter of the big ranchers think that he's in love with her, but he's really in love with the mother. Oh, dear. Who he knew as a guy. I'm not new, but he just worked for her. And he says how lonely he is without her. That's the kind of woman he wished he'd met. But they didn't have his voice, so Stephen's kind of panicked. What am I going to do? I have to have this person. So Liz Taylor said, well, um, Nick Adams, who did a Coca-Cola commercial with Jimmy Dean, he does great imitations because they were in Rebel Out of Cause together. And it's Nick Adams' voice. Fabulous did, way to uh, fix it. Yeah. It was, and it's hard to tell. If you listen, as I've, now I know that, I read that, so now I could tell it's Nick Adams, but no one else would know. Then he did a very strong movie, nominated for Academy Award, best movie, uh, Diary of Anne Frank, which, uh, and when he did this film, he, made, he insisted it be shot on location in the Netherlands. That made it only break even because it was so expensive. But he wanted to be tribute to her to not shoot in a studio. He took a side trip to go to Dachau uh, 15 years later to see the concentration camp, which now is a museum. Sadly, not sadly, like so many writers, directors, or publishers, we don't know when to get off the stage. And his last movie was a box office disaster called The Greatest Story Ever Told, a beautifully reverent story of Christ. Great cast, but uh, uh, it went way over budget. In those days, $20 million, probably the largest budget in history. So it never made the money back. And he made one minor movie after that. But uh, two Academy Awards uh, for Best Director, three more nominations, and five nominations for Best Movie. So uh, and, uh, very, very fine director and a, real, and a real gentleman. By the way, he was president of the uh, Directors Guild twice. Wow. And he had, he was very influential in um, standing up to the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee when they were investigating alleged subversive activities uh, of Hollywood. It was and terrible. He, he and others, but Stevens was a real giant um, standing up. He had enormous him. respect. A lot of the writers were uh, couldn't write anymore. Yes. Very good point, uh, Miss D. Of the Hollywood 10, all were writers. That's true. And they all banded together? Yes, and they made a mistake, perhaps, 1947. 
they probably should have taken the Fifth Amendment, the right to remain silent. They took the First Amendment, freedom of speech, kind of backfired. Also, what happened very strangely in the next two years of their appeal, they were convicted and they were out on a appeal. Uh, they were sentenced to a year in prison. Harm. During their appeal, they were counting, their lawyer was counting on the Supreme Court upholding their appeal. But two of the justices died and they were more liberal and now two conservatives came in and they turned down their appeal um. and they all went to prison for a year. You're absolutely right. It was the writers, because they're the ones who can look at the script. Now, they wrote under pseudonyms. That They had to. That was after the... And another director we may talk about, you'll see he was very involved with um, blacklisted writers. But you're right, they, they would write under a different name. And there's a couple of great cases. Yes. Yes. Was... We'll talk about he, that. No, he was wonderful. Yeah. He, 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 he did change him. Of course, everybody knew who it was. And at the end end of his career, they finally gave him an, an award because of that. It yes, was an extraordinary in 1999, yeah. uh, uh, Ilya Kazan. Uh, he already had won two, but it was a huge controversy. But I think it was good. It was overdue. And I think De Niro, uh, who'd been in The Last Tycoon, and uh, Martin Scorsese awarded it to our on stage. And I think it's wonderful. Mm. Okay, now we're going to talk about John Ford. Wonderful yes. director. John Ford is fascinating. A lot of people know who John Ford is. And here's the interesting thing to me about John Ford. I'll make a little back step. Academy Awards are now 99 years. Started 1929. In that 99 years, 17 directors have won two Academy Awards for Best Director. George Stevens, I just mentioned, Place of the Sun and Giant. Two directors have won three Academy Awards for Best Director. Frank Capra, all in the 1930s, not for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which most people think, nominated, and Someone I've talked to, done uh, um, talks about William Wyler, one three from Mrs. Miniver, uh, Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben Hur. But only one director has won four Academy Awards, and that is John Ford. Moreover, John Ford won six because he won two in World War II, including perhaps the best. Most critics would say the finest documentary ever shot in war at the Battle of Midway, in which he was actually wounded. Yes, it was a horror Furthermore, show. about John Ford is, even when he met President Roosevelt, he said, my name is John Ford, I make Westerns. <laughs> but none of his Academy Awards were for Westerns. One was 1935 for The Informer, about a betrayal, a classic story of uh, Irish selling out other Irish in the Irish uh, uh, Republic War, 1920. Wonderful actor, Victor McLaughlin, Irish, of course, fought World War I, won the Academy Award also for Best uh, Actor. Ford won not only that, but he won the New York Film Critics Circle Award. Then he won in 1940, pretty good, 1940 yeah, for uh, How Green Was My Valley. A book based on a book by Richard Trevelyan, 
It's about a Welsh mining family, 1890s. So we have a riot Irish story, a Welsh story, not Westerns. His third Academy Award was the very next year, in 1941, was uh, um, uh, based on John Steinbeck's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, which sold almost a half a million hard copies. Uh, Grapes of Wrath. His fourth and final, 1952, was filmed in Ireland. It was like a Valentine to Ireland. Um, it's always shown on St. Patrick's Day uh, on TV channels. Tale of and, Ireland. And that's... Uh, Maureen uh, O'Hara. Maureen O'Hara and uh, John, John Wayne. <laughs> and uh, what they call the Ford Repertory Theater, uh, all Irish names, uh, The Quiet Man. However, his Westerns, 1939, he did a Western called Stagecoach. There have been many Westerns, and, and during the silent era, like George Stevens, he earned his trade, learned his trade in the silent movie era. A movie he did, a silent movie, called The Iron Horse, that was about the train, the transcontinental train, and the completion of it at Promontory Point in California, Utah. Train from Sacramento and Kansas City. At any rate, it was considered one of the best silent movies ever made. Now he made some other movies, sound, like The Informer, 39, he does The Stagecoach. This movie, when they do a list of uh, American Film Institute, they rank the top 100 movies ever made. They also rank top 10 Westerns, musicals, comedies, Westerns. This is still number eight of the top 10, 1939. Orson Welles, who directed uh, Citizen Kane, Almost every poll has it still number one best movie of all time. That's French polls, Science Out English polls, Russian polls, American polls. He watched Stagecoach 44 times. Wow. Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect that I've seen in his house in Taliesin, which is a museum now, in a room he had a projector, poster, and whole table filled with notebooks from Stagecoach 125 times. He saw it. He called it an architectural masterpiece. This is from one of the great architects in our American uh, 20th century. When Orson Welles was once asked, well, um, Mr. Welles, who were you influenced by when uh, on your way up? Well, the great masters, of course. Oh. By that, I mean John Ford, John Ford, John Ford. <laughs> he is, uh, uh, for most people would say, it's very personal, uh, not just his four Academy Awards or six. No one's, uh, today's directors, just to put it in context, Spielberg has two and Scorsese has two. Unless they're giving it away, they're not going to win four, in my view. I'm just it's amazing what an amazing but also it was during the war yes and a lot of these movies were very important to people coming Patriotic. back from the war and yes. you were explaining that yes. to me which I thought was really interesting Ford joined the Navy uh, early on and um, uh, 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 even though he was even older than the others he was older than the others 
he joined the Navy, and Stevens was in Europe, another great director, William Wyler. He was working with the Army Air Force. That was a forerunner to the Air Force in those B-17s. He did a very fine documentary, uh, Memphis Bell, and lost hearing in one ear. Um, later, Wyler was going to direct the uh, Barbara Streisand, the film version of Funny Girl. And he said, I don't know if I can do this. I've never done a musical, and I'm deaf in one ear. And he said, well, if Beethoven can write music being deaf, I guess I can do this. So, cool. so Ford went to war, and uh, uh, those who were with him said the guy was absolutely cool under fire, never moved, never ran, and they were under a heavy attack from the Japs. It's a turning point battle of the war. Uh, Ford made light of it later, said, well, I couldn't run because it's an island. And then he also said, very movingly, I was inspired, and having been a Marine officer, I can test to this, I was inspired by the extraordinary bravery by the young Marines who never, ever left their stations under heavy, heavy bombardment fire. And uh, his funeral ceremony showing the ring caskets oh. and the flag and taps uh, should be seen by every school kid because it speaks to the sacrifices of what so many Americans have made, not just in World War II, other wars as well. Absolutely. And these boys don't start the wars. And that's a lot of these directors' point. Uh, whether you have politically feel this way or that way, we often forget these guys are just, they go and fight, but they don't start them. I think it's tremendous because they don't get enough credit, but they, it's the loyalty and the and the friendships that they made. Yes. It was so important for them to come home and yes. feel appreciated. Yes. Weiler said he never felt closer to anyone in his whole life than the guys in that B-17. I believe and it. And he said, I was scared to death. Well, I know that feeling. I was scared. I've always thought courage is overcoming fear. And I can tell you, I was scared many times in Vietnam. The reason I was able to overcome that fear was watching these Marines always going forward. I, I, and uh, Ford was very patriotic. Ironically, sadly, you made a very good point, Miss D. Because he was friends of John Wayne and Ward Bond, and they were conservative, Jimmy Stewart, they backed the war in Vietnam, as did uh, Johnny Carson. Ford was now considered obsolete, but people criticized him. But frankly, for those of us who were spit on, I'll mention the name, like people like Jane Fonda, it was very nice to know that some people in Hollywood were backing us. And John Ford was one unapologetically. He didn't think the war was necessarily right. That's not the point. Point is, he knew he knew not to spit on the troops, and he learned that from going. I think he learned that. That's really but, interesting. Uh, yeah, he was a great. Uh, uh, he's for me, he's the best because he did westerns, and he made four Academy Awards and non-westerns. Okay. He also, the tapestry he weaves, if you will, of American life family, home, home. He was a poet of coming home and leaving has ever been equaled uh, on film. 
Uh, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I think everybody should start watching those movies because you speak yes. so commendably of well, it. It's well, quite one, extraordinary. One thing about them, I'll just say this, as you know, whether you have a DVD player or Netflix or Turner Movie Channel, I always put a bid on for this. <laughs> Where I live uh, at my condominium here in West Palm Beach, the late Robert Osborne, who's the host on Turner Movie Channel, had a condominium in the building. And uh, friends of mine in the building said, oh my God, you're gonna drive him crazy. <laughs> and I did. And I had long talks with him. And I must say this, this is a fun story. He had Arlene Dahl, Mitzi Gaynor, and some other great former uh, Jane Powell. And he had the cocktails because they were, he was gonna be on stage at the Society of the Four Arts at night with three divas. One. And so I'm coming back with my picked up dinner from Flanagan's and he sees me in the lobby and he knew me, he says, and there are a lot of number of people waiting during the season to go out one place or another. And he didn't know a lot of people. He said, hey, Bill, how are you? I said, fine, but how are you? Are you gonna come tonight? I went, no, six o'clock, double indemnity. <laughs> he went, Billy Wilder. I said, Raymond Chandler, screenplay. Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck. Bing, bang, boom. Finally, he blew me away, but I, I held my own with Osborne. That was a great compliment. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. Okay, you're amazing. I don't just, I can't believe all this comes out of your mouth. And your memory is incredible. Okay, now we're going to talk about Frank Capra, who you mentioned earlier, who is a, yeah. still of that series, but extraordinary. Frank Capra. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Capra, uh, uh, very interesting Italian-American, very interesting. He uh, won, not only, he won three Academy Awards all during the 1930s. Uh, one was uh, called You Can't Take It With You, which is based on George M. Kaufman play. Wonderful film, zany family. Um, the daughter falls in love with a banker's son, Jimmy Stewart. And of course, it's Gene Arthur, the, Gene Arthur, the daughter. And of course, uh, the banker is, uh, no, his father, uh, her father is uh, Lionel Barrymore, Edward R. Arnold, a great actor. He always plays kind of a kind of a tough, sometimes evil businessman. Is the big banker, but somehow, even though he's depression, um, uh, they work it out in the marriage. And there's a beautiful scene at the end. The banker is trying to forget that he's this sort of um, you know uptight guy, and he's playing the harmonica with her father, and he's playing the banjo, and uh, then he did also, uh, It Happened One Night. Yeah, yes, with Clark Gable, movie. right? Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. What a lot of people don't realize, Clark Gable won the Academy Award for this movie, not for Gone with the Wind. This was done just before Gone with the Wind. In my view, he should have won for uh, Gone with the Wind. I agree. It went to a very fine actor that year, by the way, called Robert Dunant in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Very fine movie, very good actor. Some say it was because it was that studio's turn to win the Academy Award, it's a little political. By the way, it's one of the few um, movies that had a very good, I think, sequel, a musical with uh, Peter O'Toole. Huh. Uh, and they had to have talking songs the way they did for uh, My Fair Lady and Rex Harrison and Camelot for Richard Burton. That, what I mean by that is, they know these guys couldn't sing, but they were perfect in the role. 
So the songwriters did talking song. Camelot, what's a deca? Not, they could talk the song. So, but he's very good in this. It's a wonderful story, depression story. Two people thrown together in a bus ride. And then the uh, other, third one he won the Academy Award for was Mr. Deeds Goes to Down. Now, some people think, oh, that's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. No, that's a, that, that was nominated for Academy Award. That's Jimmy Stewart. That was 1939. And Gene Arthur again. This is um, Gene Arthur and uh, 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 Gary Cooper, excuse me, Gary Cooper. He inherits a lot of money, and he's got to figure out a way to spend it. He also did a wonderful movie called Meet John Doe. Meet John Doe is one of the great Depression movies. Gary Cooper, again, who's superb, he's very good at comedy. He played with Walter Brennan, who they were in six movies together, often westerns. They were in uh, Pride of the Yankees about Lou Gehrig. They were in Sergeant York about our most decorated World War I hero. They were in the Westerner together. And, uh, but wow. they were this, they were very good together. You know, sort of curmudgeonly Walter Brennan and handsome Gary Cooper. Barbara Stanwyck, who, in my view, she was nominated for five times, never won, is one of the most underrated actresses of all time. When I was 12, I was convinced I was going to marry Barbara Stanwyck, <laughs> not Marilyn Monroe. She had something, she had that something, that, that spark. Anyway, she, they start all the, Capra, oh, then he also did It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that was very well known. But when it was, the very interesting about that film, it didn't do well when it first came out. And many critics say the reason being um, was, the reason being, it was right after the war. And you think about it, it's an depressing movie. He's almost dead as an angel has to come down and talk to him before he jumps off a bridge. Yes. So the bank's going up as as, uh, as uncles as uncles or uncles lost all the money. The bad banker's going to take over. That's right. So it has a good ending, and everyone sees it now. The time it depressed people. They didn't want to see this. They want to see Bing Crosby singing "White Christmas," yeah. and you can't blame. But here's the interesting thing about it. Uh, there's one theme through Capra which I think limits him comparison to Ford. In all his movies, the evil banker, not that he was far left, he was actually quite conservative, but during the Depression, banks closed, a lot of people lost their money, they foreclosed on a lot of farms. The evil bad person, all his movies are often the banker or the politician the big politician or the banker. Not to say that I justified. Now, I have a brother and a former brother-in-law who were bankers. They're pretty honest guys. But I see the point. Ford had a lot more subtlety to his characters. They weren't uh, quite as black and white. He also did, uh, I'll think if I can remember the name, I'm pretty good. He was based on a Damon Runyon short story about Apple Annie, uh, Mr. Pocket Full of Miracles. Oh, my 1961. God. That was his last movie. Uh, this is a point. Betty Davis is wonderful in it. Glenn Ford. I loved it. I was in boarding school at the time. I saw it with my great roommate, Larry Chapin. 
star hockey team. I've been kicked out of Montford. He's been kicked out of St. Mark's. But what else do you want at Avon Old Farms in that era? Now, of course, Avon's a great, great school. And it's a great school then for taking us wee rejects in. <laughs> uh, but, um, and I mean by saying it's a great, great school now academically and athletically. But we saw it. Um, we stayed in his grandmother's beautiful apartment uh, on Fifth Avenue. I was a country boy from Litchfield County, and I took the train in to spend some of our Christmas holidays. I was actually in college then, and he was still a senior at Avon. And um, you remember those things. We saw at Times Square, big crowd. But Capra quit after that because early city said he saw, uh, he thought too much sex, too much violence on film. He was old-fashioned, and this bothered the establishment. It bothered Gregory Peck. It bothered a lot of the establishment actors and directors and even producers. Producers want to make money. But uh, anyway, uh, Capra's a good uh, uh, find. But three, one of two to win three. It's unbelievable. Now, what a, our favorite, William Wilder. Yes. He, as I mentioned earlier, is one of two directors, along with Frank Capra, we just talked about, to win three Academy Awards. He was actually born in Alsace, which is part of Alsace-Lorraine in France, as you would know, Misty, uh, from your travels. Um, but it was part of the German Empire then because of the Franco-Prussian War. I have a French background. My last name is actually David. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, Louis, uh, Louis, uh, Napoleon's nephew went out on this reckless war and were quickly defeated. World War I, France took it back. World War II, the Germans marched in. After World War II, it went to be French again. But he was Alsatian. His family uh, uh, was Alsatian, a Jewish family. His father had a very nice haberdashery. His mother exposed young William Wyler and his brother to theater and opera in around. Uh, her cousin happened to be a guy named Carl Lamel, who was the founding and now head of Universal Studios, which still exists, not under the family anymore. So this is a good story. She gets, uh, um, he was a good guy, got expelled from school a couple times. You got to like a guy like that. So the cousin says, well, take a boat over and we'll work in New York Universal, then maybe go to Hollywood. He goes to work for $35 a week in the, during the Depression, or no, the 20s, I'm sorry, the 20s, 1920s, as a messenger. But then he's deducted his paycheck because his cousin, the head of the studio, had them deduct his steerage on the boat. Oh. So, he, so yes, he was given an opportunity, but the cousin made him pay for it. Then he took a train out west to get promoted, and that ride was deducted from his pay. That's not nice. Yeah, not nice at all, Misty. He worked. He actually got fired from the studio because he discovered three things he liked more. Wow. Um, pool, yeah. gambling, horse races, and blondes. But then he got rehired, did very well, and became the youngest director in Universal's history. 
from starting out at $35 a week yes. to a director. Now yeah. that's yeah. a story. That's exactly. And like George Stevens, like John Ford, uh, like Capra, they all started in silent movies. Did a number of them. He then went on to do a couple of very fine movies in the 30s. One I'll mention, Dodsworth. That was the first movie in which he was nominated for Best Director and Best Movie. And by the way, he has the record. He was nominated 13 times for Best Director. Wow. No, the nearest to that is nine. No one will ever beat that record. He also won three, but he was nominated 13 times. And 12 movies were nominated for Best Movie. Or a fellow that started in, in silent and made $35 a week. Well, Absolutely. I'll be. That's the thing about that industry. I guess it's not that different from the early automotive industry or the high-tech industry or computer industry. Young guys, they somehow they get this, they get that. Yes. They get a break. They work hard. takes a little luck. Whatever it is, they have drive. They have a vision, a combination, and they get there. Dodsworth was a, based on a novel by the great Sinclair Lewis, who was our first novelist to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Really had seven, Steinbeck, Fitzgerald, Pearl Buck, Hemingway, wow. the great immortal William Faulkner, um, Dodsworth, very well done. And uh, that was a good. During that filming, one of the characters, Mary Astor, very fine uh, actress, she was in um, uh, The Maltese Falcon, 1941. John Huston directed. She's in court over a custody battle with her husband. She has a diary which is salacious. She's having an affair with a direct, a, uh, director, uh, George M. Coffin. Oops. <laughs> the husband releases the diary. This makes even today's slander look, no, look, look tame. But she did a great performance. So I would say she had to be a great actress. It helped the box office. Now, he which let, was sorry. you know which was the one that Churchill loved was it okay. Mrs. Minerva? Then he made a uh, he went on real quickly. He did a couple of great movies with Betty Davis. First was Jezebel. Jezebel is about uh, pre Civil War aristocratic New Orleans New Orleans family cotton hot cotton, and she's a spoiled debutante. Had me fondness in it in this film. It's like a, it's a black and white, it's like a mini Gone with the Wind. Some say she got the uh, role because they didn't give her Gone with the Wind. She was heartbroken. Regardless, during this filming, she's having a big affair with William Wyler. They were both divorced. Big affair. Wow. Well, it must have been pretty good because she wins the Academy Award, her second. Then she does... Uh, a movie called The Letter, and then the famous Lillian Hellman, fine Southern playwright, woman playwright, Little Foxes. Those two, The Letter and uh, Little Foxes, she's nominated for Best Actress. She does three movies with Wyler, and all three are nominated for Best Movie. Then he does the best rendition ever of Emily Bronte's 1847 novel, Wuthering Heights. Lawrence Olivier and uh, Merle Oberon. Very interesting little side thing. You'll love this, Misty. 
Olivier had done some movies in England. He's also a, a becoming star of the stage. But he'd done like Flame Over England with Vivian Leigh, that's where he met her. And um, they're having an affair. Well, he ended up marrying her. He wants her to be his counterpart in his first American movie. Go she come over. So he says, no, 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 Merlot Braun. Vivian Lee is really upset. But because she didn't do this movie, she could audition. And what role did she get? Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, Academy Award. It's a great story. Olivier, while it was known for takes, they call him 100 Takes Willie. He would take 60, 70 takes of a scene. John Ford, I mentioned, often took two takes. It was all in his head. I'm not saying one better than the other, but they both were great. But studios like Ford, because he did a movie under budget, on time, and it made money. One, two, three. Wyler and Stevens tended to shoot a lot of film and go over budget sometimes, in terms of time money. So he does those. Now he does Mrs. Miniver. That's right. Now this is 1941. The war in Europe, of course, started in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and France and England by treaty then went against them. We were not at the war. Very important for Americans to realize we didn't enter the war till 1941, not with Germany, with Japan because they bombed Pearl Harbor. In the summer of 1941, or 1940 rather, the draft passed by one vote in this country. We had a huge, led by Lindbergh, the great pilot, isolationist. Why? Well, what's so good or bad about Nazism? Because communism is worse, number one. Two, we lost almost 100,000 boys in two years of World War I in trench warfare. What good was that? All it was was a preview for World War II. It is absolutely true. Nothing got solved, nothing got accomplished. We, the treaty was so harsh on Germany, the Versailles led by the French, getting revenge, and Germany came back to World War II. So, but this film came out, and it was a huge, huge, it was the only mill movie that was about the home front. All the other movies were about men in combat in North Africa or on ships or planes, you know, shooting down Japanese zeros uh, in the Pacific, uh, British and Americans. Um, this was the home front. A middle class, upper middle class family with servants, very well-to-do, living on the Thames River Thames up north of London, but near an air base. Their son flies to the RAF, young volunteer, but they get bombed too because the Germans were not just bombing London, Correct. but they were bombing the air bases. And people don't realize, I think over 60,000 civilians were killed by German bombing in World War II. Well, we lost a lot in Pearl Harbor, but 60,000 is a lot. And Pearl Harbor was mostly a military base. London was their homes, towns, schools, children, women, they so took this in movie, a lot of, of German children from the early years yes. who were taken by boats before the Germans stopped, I mean, yes. from by train before the Germans stopped yes. doing it, but hundreds. Some went, yes, that's so true, and a lot of come to America. 
And yes, and then they were sent to America. Yes. But there's over a lot of Germans in England. Yes. Here yes. go, the royalty got all confused because yeah. there was a lot of Germans. No, but you're absolutely right. And so the interesting thing is about this movie is that so the war's out and they show a bombing attack. It's very, uh, real quickly, the story, the lady, and she is dame or uh, lady, she's an aristocrat. She doesn't want her beautiful daughter to marry Mrs. Miniver's son, not because of class, because there aren't that many aristocrats, and they're very well-to-do, because she feels her daughter's too young. And Mrs. Miniver reminds her, but you were married at 16, Mrs. Belden. Yes, but my husband was killed six months later in the war. But you have a beautiful daughter, and you had that six months together. So she approves. They get married. However, a few months later, she's driving with Mrs. Miniver, this daughter-in-law, German planes, strafe. She's killed. She's killed. They bomb the village, the church. So now in the church, they're all there. Mrs. Belden's lost her daughter. The son is with his family. Miss Bell is in her own pew. There's tension. Two of the choir boys were killed. And the minister, um, William uh, Wilkie, wonderful uh, actor, the reverend. And you can see open sky where the church has been bombed, part of the cathedral, church, Episcopal church, of course, high Episcopal in England. And he reads his speech. And Weiler rewrote the script. He wanted to put in, Weiler being European and being part Jewish, wanted Americans to understand and get into this war. So he was saying, this is just, the Reverend now is saying, this is not just about armies and tanks. This is a people's war. It's our war. It's your war. We have to fight appeal to people. And he was absolutely right. Absolutely. Churchill then says later, that movie, that speech, and that movie was worth 10 battleships. Well, Churchill was known for hyperbole, maybe five battleships. Point is, that was the impact of this film. It was, the speech was printed in Time and Newsweek, and on the Voice of America, it was read over and over again, broadcast all over Europe to uh, people listening on anyway the speech. It was a great, great, it was the biggest hit of the year. Huge hit in England, of course, huge hit in America. Best movie, uh, best, a- best uh, uh, actress, best supporting actress, six Academy Awards. That's a lot. Then he goes to war. Aye, aye, aye. He goes, and he, again, didn't have to go, but he feels he should. Well, he can't really go to Europe because George Stevens is doing that so well. And John Ford's in Pacific, and frankly, nobody's going to fool with John Ford. But the Army Air Corps, Army Air Force, they want publicity. They want morale publicity about their pilots. Very controversial bombing. The British refused to do daylight bombing after a while. The casualties were so high. Mm-hmm. Well, people forget. Now, you could be in a patrol, say, in Vietnam with 9, 10 Marines, and you could get wiped out. But 
When a bomber goes down, that's 9, 10, 11 guys all gone. So one bomber, if you lose 20 bombers, that's 200 guys. Wow. So that's how bad the casualties were. But Americans continued daylight bombing, heavy, heavy. He went up in B-17s called the Flying Fortresses. Because he was filming out the machine gun turrets on the waist to fight, to ward off uh, Messerschmitts, he had to lift his ear thing and lost his hearing. Uh. His documentary is very interesting, called Memphis Bell, beautifully shot, fairly free done, and he shows the, the uh, being an infantry officer and the Marine Corps has their own uh, helicopter and jet pilots. We were always jealous of the pilots. You know, they always seemed to have the Red Cross girls. They had like a jaunty thing about them. But they're really, they are cool. And, they are cool. Uh, they are cool. And they thought we were a little bit, you know, unshaven, but we were in the infantry. But there's a camaraderie and the Marine Corps, a great respect because you both rely on each other, obviously. He, um, his film was the only film in the history of the New York Times that was viewed on the first page. Front page, only film in New York Times history, front page. And it was nominated, did not win, lost to John Ford, but it was nominated for best Week. He then, after the war, was very interesting about Weiler. His great producer, Samuel Goldwyn, I should have mentioned this, Goldwyn had gone in association with Weiler, some of his great movies in the 30s. Wow. And Goldwyn had been part of that uh, uh, um, MGM, uh, Metro, uh, Golden Mayor, yeah. Louis B. Mayor. But they aced Goldwyn out. So Goldwyn became his own producer. He hated Louis B. Mayer. When Bayer, Mayer died years later, some of Goldwyn's friends said, hey, should have gone seen the funeral. was packed. I know it's Samuel Goldwyn, who was known for a lot of malapropisms, he said. <laughs> yeah, you know why it was packed? Everyone wanted to make sure the son of a bitch was, son of a gun was dead. Ah. So he does Best Years of Our Lives. Yes, which had 55 million, million people saw it. Yes. And here's, here's This movie was 1946. Here's what was happening in 1946. Everybody now is back from war. Two things happen. Babies, that was the start of the baby boom. 1946 to 1964, 75 million babies were born. Amazing. I know that from my days at Rolling Stone because that was our target audience. I was a war baby. That's 1938 to 1945. That's war babies. Very different. Different attitude. Not totally different, but but enough difference. So babies were being born. The other thing, people were going to movies. Now, you're going to laugh at this. In 1946, there were about 150 million people in the country. Now there are 325. So half the population less there is now. 90 million people went to the movies one time a week, at least one time a week. I'll repeat that. 90 million of 150, over 65%. Now, 2014, 
only 24 million go once a week, but there's twice the population. So it's like under 10% going. Now we know why television, television, cable, Netflix, computers. But what I'm trying to say is the importance of going to the movies. So that's, that's the umbrella then. Goldwyn, some say his wife, had read a story in the Saturday Post where many movie ideas come out of magazine articles. They're almost like short stories. They're almost like storylines. And about three Marines coming home and their adjustment problems. Well, he turned it to be like a Navy, say, uh, Air Force, and uh, Army. And uh, Army. Weiler, because he'd been in the war, said, I want a real veteran. Great idea. They said, you can't do this. He said, yes, I am. If I can do this movie, they got a real veteran who'd lost his arms uh, from his elbows down. Actually, a training accident, but still a war time. Uh, one of the, I never acted even in high school. And me. So you see them coming home, and I'll just mention one scene. He has a girlfriend, Wilma. She's devoted to him. It's very middle class. She lives next door. She doesn't mind, but he tells her, go away. Go stay with your aunt in the lake. Aunt lives in the lake somewhere. He doesn't want to be taken care of. He's be like a lot of veterans are crippled. He's withdrawn. She said, let me show you. And she comes up to his room and helps him put his harness on. And it is considered one of the greatest scenes in movie history because you're watching a real veteran, not an actor. Billy Wilder, who was a friend of William Wyler's, who uh, I'm going to do a talk, I think, next year on, perhaps the most cynical director in history, he told his friend Wyler, when I saw that scene, I bawled like a baby for half an hour. I can imagine. 55 million people saw this movie. It is still the sixth largest attended movie in English history. Still the sixth, not, it won eight Academy Awards. It tied Gone with the Wind for the most Academy Awards history. His second best director and uh, best actor, uh, Frederick March, plays uh, uh, Sergeant Al. And Harold Russell, the real veteran, the very interesting, the studio or the Hollywood Association didn't know if he'd win it. Uh, he was nominated for supporting actor, but didn't know if he'd win. And believe it or not, it is honest. No one fixed the vote. It's nice to know. So they gave him an honorary Academy Award because it's a real veterans right after the war. But he won anyway. Ah. So he's the only guy in history to win two for one role. This is the end of my interview Part one with Billy David. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day and stay tuned to listen to part two next week. God bless.